Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is Volume 3 of our podcast, looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 3 is all about the 90s, baby. Ben wasn't even born. Ben, how are you? You were born now, and, and you've now. been born for many a year, but you weren't born when a lot of these movies we're covering right now were made. That is very true. It's going good. I mean, we're still <laughs> pre-birth at this for this movie. We are, we are. Episode 54 is Point Break, released the same weekend as our episode last week, Boy in the hood july 1991 it's point break everyone it's <laughs> catherine bigelow who as we referred to last week the only director to be covered in all three volumes and a woman so take that the patriarchy you've lost i do find it funny that there are like these canonical directors who like when you look at it you go like tarantino spielberg scorsese spike lee all of these people have had like canonical great movies in yeah. each decade mm-hmm. and we're like no catherine bigelow <laughs> <laughs> the movie she made twice and this. Oh, that's mean to zero like thirty. Yeah. I think it was just it just she found a style and she, she like did. stuck to that style because it's a very different style to sexy men doing crime. There you go. <laughs> Episode over. There's our review. Five stars, <laughs> sexy men doing crime. I haven't seen Strange Days, but I gather some people quite like it. Have you seen Strange, Strange Days? Days? Strange Days is probably her best movie. <laughs> okay. Well, here we are with Point Break. <laughs> like no, no, like that's the thing is, I think like the the like the top of her mountain is like it's Point Break, it's Hurt Locker, it's Zero Dark Thirty. But I also understand that like Point Break is her most popular movie, so it's one of those things where it's like Strange Days is one of those ones that you like thrust on people and go like, oh, did you like that? You should watch. They this weren't movie. ready for Strange Days at the time. <laughs> Everything I've read about it, I'm like, it sounds fucking dope. I just have never seen it, but I have seen Point Break many, 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 many times. <laughs> Benjamin, I am obsessed with it because this is right in my wheelhouse. I mean, I know it's the 90s, but, you know, sort of 80s, early 90s action, dumb action movies, back when they used to make them and they were good and they weren't just about cars. What about you? Like, you, you don't share my mental illness of liking this kind of thing obsessively, but what is your relationship with Point Break? I don't think I saw this movie until after Hot Fuzz. <sighs> You saw Clerks 2 before The Silence of the Lambs, and you saw Hot Fuzz before Point Break. You're just working backwards with your references. I was, but I, I do get to say, I, so I watched Joe Dirt for the first time the other day, Okay, which has an extended Silence of the Lambs bit. And I was like, oh okay. god, thank god I didn't watch Joe Dirt before I saw Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> so the, obviously this movie is like referenced very heavily in, in Hot Fuzz. Like, yes. It's probably like, <laughs> licensed, in fact. It's the, yeah, it's the only movie that they license an actual clip for, rather yeah. than just kind of reference. Uh, do they do the the wraparound from Bad Boys? Oh, they do do the rap. They do do Bad Boys as well, don't they? Yeah. But he's like, like, which one? And, and he's like, which one's better? He's like, no, which one first? Good movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that was the first time I saw it. I was like, right, okay, I need to go watch this. But the thing is, like, this was a long time after I'd seen Speed. It's a long time after I'd seen The Matrix. Uh-huh. For whatever reason, this was the last of Keanu's '90s action trilogy that I yeah. got to. I think it's probably the second best of those three movies. It's, it's better than Speed. It's, it's not as good as The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, but it is crazy to think that this is like this is Keanu Reeves' first action role. Yes, and Bigelow was adamant about casting him, and like you know, at, at the time he is known for it's Bill and Ted, and it's Parenthood. Like, he has both of those in '89, and he is like, oh, you're just the stoner comedian. And down to the point that like they're making Bill and Ted two like immediately after they wrap on this. I have to assume some people were like, action movies are going to ruin your career. And that's unfathomable now because we talk about the giants of action movies of like Schwarzenegger and Stallone and, and, and all 
these people. I think stealthily, it's fucking Keanu at the top of that mountain. <laughs> Ke- Keanu is probably like maybe not. He is an incredibly physical actor. Like yeah. I think that is his strength. It isn't necessarily like dialogue delivery. Delivery. <laughs> he is. He is a physical presence. Yeah. And he can deliver lines when you need him to. But like you give him something like the fact that he follows up because obviously ninety one is like a huge year for him. He just point break, Bill and Ted two, and My Private Idaho. Three wildly different movies. Yeah. In terms of and all of them he's great in. But then he follows up with Bram Stoker's Dracula and Much Ado About Nothing, which are completely out of his wheelhouse. Because they're a bit more like flowery in dialogue and whatnot. Whereas these are like, no, we just you just give him lines of dialogue to deliver as like maybe a bit of banter, maybe like some just straightforward stuff. But like he can do that and then he will be physical and like yeah. just do what you need him to do. You just have to point him in the right direction. I think for a very long time everybody just loved dunking on what a bad actor he was and how wooden he was. And then that sort of faded away and everyone's embraced him as this sort of like cool zen dude who's just like yeah whatever i make movies it's not that deep bro but like he when he is pointed in the right direction and used in the right way and like finds the right stuff for him he is unparalleled like i can't imagine anyone else as johnny utah like no matter like they offered it to matthew fucking broderick they wanted johnny depp because they wanted a bigger star than Keanu, like charlie sheen val kilmer like all the logical people but like i can't imagine anyone else doing this dumb fucking role that he makes fucking sing. Johnny Depp would be dreadful in this movie. Yeah, because he'd take it completely seriously and he'd do some monologue about surfing. But that's the thing is, because Keanu is one of those actors who, like, every, like, five years or whatever it is, his career kind of dies. (laughs) Yeah, and then he'll like find something new to do and he'll come back and be like everyone's favourite movie star like John Wick to now it's like people are just excited to see him show up in stuff people are just enthusiastic for him and like he's able to parlay that into have you seen Always Be My Maybe? I was gonna say like like, they they are billing it in the the trailer that like look and it's it's Keanu playing himself isn't it? yeah but like in a very silly way sure (laughs) it's the same thing where like he's also probably the best like new character in Toy Story 4 I look forward to seeing him in DC Super Pets. Just a wild career, but he also has, like, at this point, two action franchises that Mm. he can hang his hat on, as well as two of the other best 90s action movies. Yeah, I mean, he he really, like, sank himself into martial arts stuff. And, you know, it makes sense. You're coming off The Matrix, so, you know, you do Man of Tai Chi and 47 Ronin and and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think some people have a a sort of a soft spot for that, but I think he was struggling to find something between The Matrix and John Wick. He's trying all sorts of shit, like Constantine... I will never watch. Looks like a piece of shit. <laughs> is probably the best of that sort of movie that was coming out at that time. Uh huh. The, like, the sort like, of you know the pre superheroes are everywhere. People are just licensing things and just doing what the fuck they want with them. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those annoying things where it's like the movie is fine on its surface, but you do kind of want the bisexual Liverpudlian of course magician rather yeah. than Keanu. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you know you can show him smoking and you can show him giving demons the finger, but like that ain't. Constantine. <laughs> and like, I, I, I'm down for Keanu, like, slaying demons and stuff. It's just, they should be separate things. 
but yeah, you know, like in, in and the Lake House and Scanner Darkly and all this sort of shit, and then yeah, John Wick restores him. He just has throughout this whole movie, he is the blueprint for a himbo in my opinion, <laughs> because he's just got this fucking goofy smile on his face while his superior, like John McGinley, is is just <laughs> furious with him all the time. It's it's such a great introduction because obviously you start off with him firing his gun and being like absolutely incredible, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm so great, and then he just gets this complete dressing down from John C. McGinley and you get like so many immortal lines of dialogue like immediately like young dumb and full of cum and blue flame special and just like oh I take the skin off my chicken (laughs) yeah we don't drink and we don't smoke and like I care about my man he's like I take the skin off chicken sir and it's like he's obviously mocking him but he's like good man (laughs) and then immediately like goes to grab a donut love these things yeah just he's so good and like waving at Angelo when when they're introduced after he's like insulted him to his face without knowing it and I think my favourite of all of those is sort of midway through when like people are robbing banks with with president masks on and Angelo's hunch is it's a surfer gang so he's embedded himself in surfer culture and like him standing in Harp's office in like a vest shorts holding a board because he can't leave it in the car and just getting screamed at and then going caught my first tube today sir like it's like this is perfect this is absolutely perfect I think the reason why Keanu is so good for this role is because he does exude puppy energy but also like he is green to this kind of thing I mean it's not to say that like obviously like Swayze isn't like really an action star at this point he's done some action movies but like his two biggest hits to this point are Ghost and Dirty Dancing yeah and like he's he's promoting Ghost while this is being filmed and stuff like that so in some of those scenes it's completely somebody else and he's just doing the voiceover for the for the president stuff. I, I think Keanu's innate Keanu-ness just makes this character really... It's objectively such a fucking dumb character. Like, star football player, becomes FBI agent, becomes surfer, falls in love with the surf, leaves the FBI. Like, it shouldn't work, but he makes it work because, like, he just has that earnestness and, like, when it comes to the action stuff, like, you know, like, the huge thing is, like, over and over, like, they, they t- there's, like, you know, Johnny's a wild man, you know, he's reckless. So you can see it in his eyes kind of thing. And I think that actually comes from Keanu and it's like that kind of it is the double-edged sword if you're gonna get some wooden dialogue like there are definitely some lines in this where he's fucking terrible but you're also gonna get this incredibly authentic just raw energy like he throws himself at the action and yeah I think this is one of the ones where like it's like 95 good 5 bad and (laughs) you live with that so I I have to wonder so obviously like so this is Catherine Bigelow like she's coming off like quite a few years of like tiny movies and this Mm. is James Cameron basically going like give my give my wife a movie (laughs) yes bearing in mind that he's filming T2 at the same time he's falling in love with Linda Hamilton on the set of T2 at the same time this is Bigelow and Cameron divorce the same year that this comes out but this Mm -hmm. is like Cameron's last big thing saying like I think she deserves a big break and so like he's putting up the money for her to do this or like putting up his credit for her to Mm. do this and she obviously like just completely smashes it out of the park yeah. in terms of it like this script is ostensibly written by W. Peter Lith yeah but really <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah that's the thing is it's one of those things where I'm sure this is a script that he wrote and some of the lines of dialogue are like in existence and stuff like that but he is also like you look at his other credits and you're like oh you are just a guy who probably sold spec scripts and like they just got rewritten well re-written. Rick King produces the movie he comes up with the idea while he's on the beach and like hears about LA being 
being like a huge thing for bank robberies or whatever. He tells Peter Illiff, hey, write this movie. Pays him fuck all money and he's like, he has a day job and then he's writing Point Break at night. And then it, it's supposed to be with Ridley Scott and then four years later, it's neatly in Catherine Bigelow's lap and, and she and Cameron. I just, everything I can see is they completely, re- maybe not completely rewrote it, but it's their script, but just the rules being what they are with, with the union. Probably, it's probably similar to like, maybe it's not quite as much of a structural teardown as you think it is. Like the structural mm-hmm. beats are still all there, but they're like, this is this is 200 pages of script. We could probably do it in like a hundred. Like let's just <laughs> rip out all of the dialogue and just have- You're telling me you don't want to see deep art house point break. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's probably more of a case of like, no, yeah, um, yeah. we have charismatic enough actors who can carry this just from looking. Yeah, we yeah. don't need to have long, pointless scenes of like exposition and yeah. stuff like that. Let's just strip it down. We'll nail all the extreme sports. We'll nail all the action beats. Yeah, like, and that that should be pointed out as well as this is capitalizing on the upswell of you know surfing, skateboarding, all this snowboarding is all coming in. The X Games are either new or on the horizon, so it is hitting a key demo you would think although i don't think it made as much money as i thought it did and in fact on that note so on a budget of 24 million it makes you know 83 and a half which not bad but like in my head it was this huge smash here i think it's a very popular movie that did very well on like home video yeah this is 100 percent like a word of mouth cult classic kind of thing yeah but, but kind of goes beyond cult classic i think it's just probably it coming out to spoil like the weekend it came out obviously we did it last week for boys in the hood <laughs> but like it's coming out the weekend after T2. Husband and wife dominate the box office. Yes, sandwiched in between a Disney re-release 30 years later and <laughs> the youngest Best Director nomination ever. It's obviously like, I think it's just the mind share of this kind of movie is blocked off by the fact that T2 has come out and Cameron has kind of like completely dominated this particular corner of the movie field. And I do think that like T2 is a bit more serious and a bit more like standard in terms of what it's doing. And so I do think that like people look at this movie and go like, oh, it's just it's weird that it's two romantic stars or not mm. romantic stars, but like a, a comedy star and a romance star kind of at the center of it. And it's kind of like, well, do I really want to watch? Like, are the people who are into Keanu and Patrick Swayze going to check this movie out? And I think it's kind of like changing that point of view about who these people are. And obviously that is like Swayze has got Roadhouse, but I do think it is a hard sell with these two. Obviously, both fantastic, arguably their best performances they've ever given. Right up there, yeah. <laughs> Like, but it's just I do think it like you need to kind of like shift the perception a little bit and so the people who go see it probably come away going like wow that was fucking great and then when it comes out on VHS or whatever like yeah. it just starts to like <laughs> snowball but you do suffer the fact that like as you say like opens number four at the box office this weekend I don't think it holds on I mean obviously like it, it grosses 8.5 million dollars in its opening weekend and it goes on to do 85 so obviously there's a 10 times multiplier in yeah. that opening weekend so that's a, a decent enough kind of like expansion on it but I yeah you tell your friends they go see it but it's not like massive Yeah, Yeah, on that topic, like, before we leave 1991, let's talk about the biggest movies of of the year, and also just, like, some stuff that could have made it onto the list for 91, but if not for the fact that we only have 25 slots. Yeah, so, obviously, number one highest grossing movie of the year, this is kind of the second proper Disney Renaissance movie with Beauty and the Beast after Little Mermaid, dominating everywhere, but even then, only makes $250 million worldwide, which is just such a paltry number now when you think about it. Wasn't Batman vs. 
Superman considered like one of the biggest box office failures in recent memory, and it made like three hundred million or something like that. Yeah, I mean the thing is, you say that like Point Break only made eighty-five million. Eighty-five million is enough to get this movie into like number eleven mm. on this list. Yeah, I um, just when we were planning this out and when we tried to assign what things get talked about in which episodes, I was like, oh, Point Break probably made loads of money, right? And it's like, eh, not that much. <laughs> At least not as much in comparison to like the fact that we did cover the number four highest grossing movie of 1991. Obviously, it's coming out the same weekend as T2, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is a monster, you've got City Slickers, Hook, Adam's Family, Sleeping with the Enemy, all making over $100 million mm-hmm. in 1991. I saw a post on Twitter yesterday, it was like, you know, lamenting sequels, remakes, reboots, all that, and they, they posted a random week from 1991, it must have been around this time, because T2 was number one, and it was like, you will never see a top ten this interesting again or whatever <laughs> so yeah I mean, the, and a lot of the movies you just reeled off were were in this list like Robin Hood and like you have a Disney you have a lot of original stuff you have action you have comedy like yeah it is quite interesting to hear that kind of a list back because that, that is the thing it's like when you go to the cinemas nowadays it's normally going to be like seven sequels or like recognisable <laughs> IP it'll probably all be like things that just aren't very exciting like the quality isn't there to support those kind of things and you'll see it well like the box office shifts but like movies will come out every week but there'll be like two or three in the middle of like a four week run which is like no one gives a shit about and yeah. like even at this point in time you can see it the box office is happening right now where you can literally see the baton pass between F9 has come out it's had it's like two weeks at the top Black Widow you can now take it for a little bit of time it's just like it's kind of dull there's not much competition it's just everything is staggered that the big monster hits get to have their like legs to stretch out not to turn this into a movie practices of today versus yesteryear but I do think a huge component of that is Point Break was made for 24 million dollars that would that would buy you an actor these days there's a shit ton of money out there so it's only so much of an excuse but given how expensive they are to make I can kind of see why someone in a studio is crunching numbers to turn it into a formula and like you know it's a risk it's an investment to spend big on a brand new movie with no attached book, IP, whatever, whatever. But, I mean, have you seen the remake of Point Break? I have not seen the remake of Point Break. I haven't I either, but, like, I that trailer... Fun, <laughs> I did have a fun, like, little, like, weird full circle thing about that movie, which is, so the person who plays Johnny Utah in that movie is Luke Bracey, uh-huh. who, the year before he got Point Break, he is cast as young Dawson Cole in The Best of Me. It's the James Marsden, Nicholas Sparks movie. Okay. But James Marsden is replaced Placing Paul Walker, who died oh. that year and couldn't do it. So you have this weird thing where, like, Luke Bracey was was cast to play a young Paul Walker, who, of course, in The Fast and the Furious, plays. <laughs> Johnny Utah. Okay. I'm looking at it now. It made 133, almost 134, off 105 million. So, fuck you, remakes, I guess. <laughs> the thing I've heard is, so it's directed by a cinematographer. Uh-huh. I'm sure um, it looks very pretty. That's the thing, is like, the thing I've heard is, if you cut out every scene where people are talking and just showed <laughs> the extreme sports, like, you've probably got like, a good extreme sports video. They're like free soloing and all that sort of shit, and, and just like, we're going to take the extreme sports up to the max it's like were you under the impression that johnny utah was supposed to be like the world's best surfer like that's not the vibe of the movie at all no it's kind of endearing that's the whole thing is like obviously this movie is impressive in the fact that like the surfing and the skydiving are shot 
so well. Yeah. They're both really nice looking, but the reason why they're so nice looking is because, obviously, Keanu's the weak link here, where Keanu does a couple of his own stunts. Like, he does the jump out of the helicopter at the end, but when he is skydiving, it's very pointedly like he's in one of those, like, air cylinders, they're pointing the camera up, and you don't get to see much <laughs> of the skyline. And then you cut to Patrick Swayze, and Who's it's like this wide... Mad man. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a wide shot, and you can see, like, fuck, the, the ground is coming towards us, his hair is billowing everywhere. Yeah. Like, I, I have to assume Patrick Swayze was like a skydiver before this movie. Now this is a popular misconception. He had never done it before. His brother was a huge skydiving fan but he took it up after this and couldn't get enough of it and uh, for the movie he completed 55 dives. (laughs) Which is half the number Tom Cruise did for Mission Impossible Fallout so basically a fucking amateur but you know. (laughs) That's that's quite intent for. It's like I would like like obviously I think the Fallout plane sequence is is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. But like doing this thirty years before Fallout comes out and it's just <laughs> it looks so good and it's just it's so endearing to have all these amazing shots of like because it, it isn't it like it's Swayze is doing all his own stuff. I assume, most of it. I assume James Legros is doing most of his own stuff. And I then, think like, I, I think his little fuckboy crew are mostly all doing all of that. Yeah. Because they're, they're just like two random surfer guys, aren't they? Like. Yeah, yeah. Like James Legros is obviously someone who's been in Catherine Bigelow movies before this point. He's in Near Dark and stuff like that. Whereas the other two are just like people who do sports that Catherine Bigelow like the look of. Like, and they're not asked to do much, but it does lend to, to the vibe of it all. Um, and like, I, I think that is the point overall: is that with a different director, you maybe don't get as endearing a movie. Like, I think her thing is authenticity. I think you see that play out over her career. You know, she goes to movie jail for a little while, but like you see Hurtlock, you see Zero Dark Thirty and like you know she seems to be incredibly interested in trying to make things feel as authentic as possible and like I haven't seen Detroit but I think we just all quietly ignore that one but you know her insistence that I want you to do as many of your stunts as possible I want you all to go learn how to surf I want you all to go learn how to skydive I want you go learn how to fight and all of this sort of stuff and it does lead to all this really dynamic camera work and seeing actors faces in the middle of stuff and it's not you know a million cutaways and clever tricks to do it it's like that's Patrick Swayze in the air we'll talk about like there are basically five big action scenes and one of them is one of the greatest in history but you know the intensity of that chase and like a, a guy with a specially rigged steady cam following them around these alleys and stuff. And it's just incredible. And I think that it's wild to think this woman who will become lauded for her portrayals of conflict in the Middle East, arguably that starts here. <laughs> or I mean, I I haven't seen much of her earlier work. Maybe it's everywhere, but I think I think it is one of those things where I I think Hurt Locker kinda of happens at the right time. I don't know when exactly the point break reclination happens. Because I, I obviously that does happen in like you can point to Hot Fuzz as like a point in that timeline where it's like no this is one of the great action movies well I think we lost action movies and then people were like bring these back <laughs> like, sure but I, 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 there probably is a level of that but then I do think there is a thing like everyone's like wow we really did Catherine Bigelow dirty I know she did some like shitty movies like K-19 and Weight of Water and stuff like that and it's like mm. no one should have to suffer through either of those things <laughs> But when she comes back with Hurt Locker, I think people are looking back nostalgically at Point Break yeah. and going, we did her dirty. And lo and behold, she comes back with like, oh, look, here's this, like, yes, it's stripped down. Yes, the movie is made for, like, the same budget as this, but 20 years later or whatever. But, like, they finally get to go, like, she is fantastic at tension and action and just female gaze, I think, is probably the, the other thing. It's like, she is probably the best working female director who is able to kind of get at the core of what men do 
and like how men act around each other. We can talk about how individually good Keanu and Swayze are, and, and Swayze is this like borderline cult leader, and some of the ridiculous lines he makes work. Back off War Child, seriously, is one of my favourite lines in the history of cinema. I think the core of this movie is the relationship between Johnny and Bodie, and you know, you can go tee hee hee homoerotic, but it's actually quite a fascinating dynamic they have, in that it's, like they actually are these like kindred spirits. There is, there is certainly some homoeroticism, but it, I think it's more than that. I agree, because it's like, you look at this in comparison to Top Gun, and Top Gun is obviously so much more about, like, I've got a big dick, you've got a big dick, let's, <laughs> like, swagger around and, like... Play volleyball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that movie is more homoerotic than this movie is, yeah. whereas this movie is kind of more of a, like, male-to-male intimacy drama. My, my take is... <laughs> Top Gun. The stars of Top Gun would have one awkward fuck and then beat each other up and say they're straight. I think Bodie and Johnny could have ended up together in, a, in an actual relationship. I, I, I would agree there. And obviously, there are so many lines where it's like, if you if you just take it on the surface, like, I know you want me so bad, it's like acid in your mouth. It's like, <laughs> yep, we're gonna ride this all the way, Johnny, you and me. <laughs> yeah, like like to the point where like it feels like they had to go like, shit, Laurie Petty, can you come in and like both of the, both of them have had sex with her, uh-huh. and it's like you need to be in here to make sure that people realise these men are straight. <laughs> because, like, you know, even in the office, they're like one of the analysts at the FBI is like basically drooling over Johnny and he's just completely nonplussed by her. But actually, like, we should probably talk about Laurie Betty, like, real quick, because I think the Johnny and Bodhi dynamic is basically the movie and the big action scenes. But I like that like, she, she is a slight left turn from what this role would normally be. I think because she is such an interesting, like, physical and, like, auditory presence in this kind of movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, she's known now by, like, you know, go get the quirky girl, for, you know, whereas seeing her, like, younger here, and, like, you know, she's been cut, obviously an aspect has she's been cast because she's thin and hot, but, like, the role is, it is one of charisma and strength, and, like, while she's put into some sexual situation, she's never objectified. Like, even when Johnny is watching her get changed, she's covered by a towel, and it's all very, like, awkwardly, like, wriggling out of a swim costume kind and, of like, thing. And, and, but it's also very obvious that, like, in all the scenes where she's naked, Keanu is also naked. Yes. The scene where he, like, falls out of bed and you get, like, oh, look, I can see, like, <laughs> I can see the, the like, the shape of your thigh and I can see your ass as you're, like, walking uh, around. Like, yeah. You have not done this, like, clothes. Yeah, I would go as far as to say that, like, his physical affection for her is not typical of an action lead. I always go to, like, the scene where, like, he's staring at the ceiling and she's, like, laying face down and he's just, like, stroking her arm. Like, something as simple as that. Or, like, when they they fuck on the beach and wake up together and he's late and he just can't stop kissing her. It's like, this is... You don't see this. It's yeah, like... there's a, a, a lovely moment where he's like going like, shit, I'm like, shit, I'm like getting dressed. And then he just gets distracted about being late just to kiss her. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think some of that is Keanu. Like, I think he is a, a more sensitive fellow than, than the average meathead you would put, you would cast in, in, in action stuff. And then I think some of it is, is Catherine Bigelow and like going out of her way to make the character, the Tyler character, like, I mean, it kind of sucks that she gets like, taken hostage and is bait at the end. But up until then, it's like, while they have both banged her, she is not 
a prize that they're fighting over. It's it's almost she almost is used as a point of mutual jealousy towards each other. Mm. When they walk into that party and like he's doing like a tequila shot off a girl and, and like she's like oh I taught him that and 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 like Johnny and him are like staring at each other and like yeah it's just I do like that that she she is her own person she can kind of see through his shit a little bit she finds the badge herself all of that stuff but yeah like it, it is nice to see you can imagine a version this movie where she's just like tits out five times and like we want you in the tiniest swim costume possible despite the fact you're a surfer not a like bikini babe but no she she is i think she's handled as well as could be asked for short of it like being her movie kind of thing yeah like i think she's she's really well cast she's obviously like a left field choice for for this kind of movie because obviously normally as you say like normally it would be the actual two naked women in this movie would be like (laughs) who the action lead is okay i mean that's probably a bit mean because like they are obviously cast for like their their very stereotypical like surfer girl Uh kind of vibe rather than like i mean the naked one beats the shit out of the fbi agent that is that is what i was going to get to which is incredible and like that feels like such a like catherine bigelow thing where it's just like yes i will let you have a naked woman in my movie but the naked woman has to like curb stomp keanu yeah and like you know she's in silhouette in the shower she's in the extreme background when she's fully naked and then when she's doing the fight scene obviously because of the way they're like moving there's never this like let's leer at her as she like rubs her breasts and kind of stuff so it's like yeah you you have to imagine if she had the full choice maybe there isn't a naked person but like you know as you say you can have a naked lady but she's going to fucking <laughs> kick the shit out of Johnny Utah and then like stab another dude in the back <laughs> yeah exactly but that's the thing is like they, they, they she gets the nudity away but she's like we're not going to have the lead, the lead actress do it yeah. and I think the movie is better for that because like the sensuality comes from yeah. the kind of the restrained nature of that relationship which which is obviously appreciated and yeah like Laurie Petty like orders of magnitude better than she needs to be for the role yeah exactly like, like, it, she's so memorable mm. you see a million of these love interests in action movies and they're all so forgettable and like I will never forget Tyler I remember being like a, a sort of early teens guy watching this movie with you know very different ideas about the world and this qualified as like she's different man like even at that age and like you know it's not that different but different enough and and for for the world of movies especially movies in the late 80s early 90s it's kind of cool that a character like this is is cast in this role so before we get into like the the Swayze County stuff can we just do Busey and McGinley sure Busey is incredible in this movie Gary Busey exudes the energy of a guy who doesn't understand that he isn't the lead <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like, Gary Busey is going around going like, I've cracked this case, they're surfers. And it's like, look, I'm getting ready to like invade the surfer cult. And you look at him in like any scene where he's at the beach and you're like, you would be killed two minutes into like you trying to go deep cover on this. What's like, up, only- fellow teens? <laughs> the only reason you are you were able to get anywhere is because like Puppy Boy has fallen into your yeah. lap. I think the thing is, he is also a guy who is known for his wild energy. And I think they've found the perfect fit. Like, Keanu's wackiness and Busey's, they're not the same kind of wackiness, but they're both offbeat guys who are very energetic and charismatic, and they just flow really well together. And then you've got McGinley as, like, the perfect stick in the mud. Yeah, I love Busey in this. Like, even, like, when they're about to do the raid and he's, like, yelling Scooby down the road, like, 50 feet before he needs to. (laughs) But he's like, no, I commit to this role. (laughs) 
kind of sucks that he dies. The thing is, it kind of fits, though, because I do think that a big point of what makes this movie work is that, like, every single man in this movie kind of sucks. I mean, yeah, let's not get away from the fact Johnny Utah gets a fucking hard-on when he hears that Tyler's parents were killed. <laughs> He's like, I can use that. <laughs> exactly. Like, they're, all, they're all just a little bit of assholes. They're all using each other to do different things. In the case of Gary Busey, he almost completely fucking blows the raid because he wants a sandwich. and is Two sandwiches. Two sandwiches. Get me two. And he's reading, like, comic books. Or, like, not comic books, but, you know, like, like comic strips. He's so good at reacting to that as well. I do love the idea that in his head he was the lead of the movie. And he's like, I see my action scenes are coming up. And then McGinley is like, obviously, I, I, where is this in McGinley's career? Because obviously, like, to most people nowadays, he is Dr. Cox and Scrubs. And obviously, like, he has this kind of, like, weird action run. Platoon is the big one, obviously. Yes. So Platoon's the big one. He's in Wall Street. So he's in a lot of Oliver Stone movies. And then he gets out and just point break. And then after this, he's in, like, Seven and The Rock and Office Space. And, like, playing just kind of authoritative figures, I guess, is kind of the niche that he falls into. He's very good at being a scary person in charge of protagonist, basically. (laughs) Not for nothing, but, like, he is incredible in Scrubs. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he is incredible in Scrubs. Like, apparently the role in the script says, like, when he got the script, it was like, we need a John C. McGinley type. (laughs) He still had to audition for it, but, like, apparently, like, they wrote it with him in mind of, like, what kind of energy they wanted to exude. And you can see that. Like, I'm sure they are watching Point Break and going, like, oh, this is is the energy. We want the person who's going to dress them down. Like, obviously, he's not going to be able to say lines like, young, dumb, and full of cum in Scrubs, but, like, (laughs) we need that kind of energy of, like, him dressing down Keanu and the kind of guy who you want to punch. And if you've got someone who's a little bit more on edge, like Gary Busey, like, probably will end up being punched. (laughs) Just comically knocks him out as well. I mean, I really don't know how you get around... He has Johnny Utah arrested, and then nine months later, he's still investigating the case. But, you know, whatever. The supporting cast, the FBI side, like, well, if you told me the plot of this movie, I would imagine the FBI side of things would be the bit I'm the least interested in. But they got two really great people to make that side interesting. Here's where I want to bring up the elephant in the room Mm -hmm. again, which is, obviously, this movie has two remakes. Two? Well, yeah, there's Point Break and there's The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. That's fucking wild. And so I've been watching all the Fast and Furious movies, and obviously The Fast and Furious has developed its own identity at this point, but mm-hmm. like, it is inescapable that that first movie is beat for beat, almost identical. Yeah, Other yeah, than yeah. the fact that, obviously, the romantic lead of Fast and Furious is Patrick Swayze's sister, or the equivalent of Patrick Swayze's sister. So you get rid of all that. Like, I think Paul Walker and Vin Diesel have just less of that. It's good chemistry, but it's a less interesting chemistry than these two have, and obviously... It's because it's Rob straight Co- chemistry, that's yeah. why. <laughs> and Rob Cohen is fundamentally a less interesting director than, yeah. than Bigelow is, as for those action scenes. But you watch the movie, and I think the biggest failing that the Fast and the Furious makes in basically just beat-for-beat beat a Adapting Point Break down to the point that like the raid in Fast and Furious happens at the same point and mm. it ends in the same way where like they have a conversation and then they do like a little bit more extreme sports and then he lets him get away. Obviously in Point Break when he lets him get away it's because he's gonna fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than in Fast and Furious, where he gives Makara literally aids and abets a wanted criminal to uh-huh. escape. The biggest weakness is is that the Fast and Furious kind of tries to hide that Paul Walker's an FBI agent. It holds it back, whereas this movie is very upfront and sets up the fact that like he is an FBI agent and he is going to investigate these people. And so the FBI side of the Fast and Furious is so dull and boring, and it hangs around for three out of the first four movies. And you're like, <laughs> oh my god, I do not give a shit about any of this stuff. They try to make the reveal that he's an FBI agent, the reveal at the same time that like Vin's gang discovers that he is, and it's just such a bone 
wrong-headed move because it's like don't yeah. keep this mystery from the audience this like that should be the tension going in exactly yeah like the and, and like the tension and the comedy arise from like you're not going to be good at this like you are a very upright guy like the very first attempt buys a surfboard from a 15 year old he's like you're fucking old dude <laughs> and that tension of like especially in the back half of, of him being found out i mean i guess i guess both become disillusioned with their careers as cops or whatever but like i think another part of that is is that i mean it comes back to the relationship between johnny and Bodie. is like even if he wants to catch him clearly there is some connection this has awoken something in him he no longer wants to be in the fbi by the end of it and he still surfs every day and, and all of that and the thing being that like you know no other agent well, probably no other agent could have done this because while he may not be doing the best job at being undercover, he does have something that the others don't in that, like, he is reckless. He is a wild man. He is, like, almost suicidally throwing himself into stuff. And that's where they connect. And that's what lets him in bed with them. So I do wonder, because obviously, like, the first scene that Swayze and Keanu have together is the scene on the beach after, like, Keanu is learning how to surf. Because obviously the first time he goes out, he's he's dreadful. And basically, like, washes out. And then Laurie Petty just, like, starts to berate him and go, like, like, or she saves his life because obviously he's going to drown and she's like Jesus Christ you just you can't just like yeah. go out there and expect to be good and then he gaslights her essentially mm-hmm. into like into being trained where he's just like oh my parents died too and here's my sob story and I have to wonder like how much of all of his thought process is A is part of that story true the fact that like his his parents were pushing him for the quarterback career and he's kind of had to fall back on something else and yeah. so now and now this is his chance to like do something else but then also because he is into sports and he's missing the kind of adrenaline rush of doing that extreme sports when mm. Bodie recognises him as like the college all-star quarterback <laughs> that he was yeah. and he's like oh this is someone who recognises me, recognises me for my fame and wants me to like expand past that and so it's kind of like he's able to forge his own path but mm. also come back to that kind of like adrenaline rush sports star kind of stuff that he he was going to and was supposed to have for most of his life. And like he's like flattered that they all know who he is you know like you know, maybe it's it's that way of like he didn't actually like football as much as his parents wanted him to, or whatever. Or you could take it the other way of like he desperately misses football, and like these are people who like, like oh man, I know all about you. You're great. That little smile on his face, and you know, Tyler will comment that like basically his whole demeanor changes. Like he goes from like deadly serious, and like this is he's studying for a test I think she says and then he just starts to just genuinely like it and he gets lost and he smiles and call that like their first meeting but like they obviously do the classic mirrored opening of Bodie surfing while Johnny's on the training course but the very first time Johnny sees Bodie he cannot take his eyes off him while he's surfing Mm. and that's where the like you can make a read of basically this being a rom-com almost where like he's just staring at him more than he was at Tyler (laughs) and and they right away are just sort of they just hit it off in a way and like they they play football together and like it becomes his personal mission to tackle him into the sea but then like he's cool with it while the rest of the crew aren't and Bodie comes to his rescue when he's fighting the white supremacists and stuff like that and it's there throughout and like they they are they just have this bond like I said, they are frequently like locking eyes with each other, and 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 of course, it, it ending in that incredible way. Like I love the ending of Point Break. Like I think basically you've got like an hour and twenty minutes of like perfect action movie, and then from there, from where Tyler gets taken hostage, and like the the shootout and the skydive is like eh, whatever. And then the ending is incredible with like he's been tracking him for nine months. He knows him. He's been right on his tail, and then like that they have this 
shared understanding. You know, they're like wrestling in the water. Bodhi won't kill him. He won't take the shot earlier in the movie, obviously. And then handcuffing them together and like Bodhi like pleads with him. Plead, like, you know, the 50 year storm, like key to his character is that he is this sort of spiritual man who who is very anti-capitalist and is like, you know, I, you can't put me in a cage, man, and all that sort of stuff. And then he lets him go. And then that's his mission. He got his guy and he just happily walks away and tosses his badge. And well, He got to have the last word on it and goes yeah. like, cool, I respect him enough to have the death that he wants. And that death is obviously like riding on the 50-year storm and riding on the just in fucking insane waves that are coming down. Like, did they go to Australia to shoot that final scene or was it like... Maybe, I don't know. That's but... things I tried to look, I tried to see if I could find like shooting locations. Obviously so much of it is in LA, but I'm like, did they go to Australia for like that, that one scene? Because obviously it pays off because obviously it looks so different to like the LA coast. I don't know. If it's fake, they did a good job of making it at least seem like a different place, if not necessarily Australia. Um, but the idea that despite everything, maybe Brody's gotten uh, Bodie's gotten through to him a little bit, or like the love of the surf has made him disillusioned with the FBI. But and like when he lets when um, Bodie gets away after the skydive, he's like neither of us get to win this one. Even when he knows, and we'll, we'll talk about the big action scenes. I think to end. But like, even when they, you get to that point where it's like the open secret of each other's identities, where like Johnny ran with nothing covering his face directly at the bank robbers, and he's known for a little while now that Bodhi's behind it, and they have to kind of continue to hang out, and like the the tension of the skydive and all of that stuff. But like, while obviously Bodhi culminates all that in like, oh, we kidnap Tyler, do what we say, or else there is still this kind of like, I want to hang out with you, and like. I want you to have fun skydiving and enjoy it and all of this. And he is genuinely, as they're forcing him to help with the bank robbery, it's like, you know, you might like it. Like, why why be the law? Why uh, be a servant of the law when you can be its master or whatever? And all that shit. And it's just, yeah, I think that's what defines the movie is that, like, while Bodhi is, a, you know, the villain, he's a likeable character and and their dynamic is, is just infectious, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the interesting thing about what Swayze does is obviously, like, the whole point at the start of the movie is that these bank robberies are so like well-timed like they're in and out 90 seconds they never go for this and it feels like Bodhi is such like an adrenaline junkie or like he so wants to be in in like inhabit the world that he's in and all the rest of it that when he figures out that that Johnny is like an FBI agent he starts to get more reckless because it's almost like he wants to be caught or he wants to be able to get away which Mm. is why he starts doing like more and more insane things it's like this is finally where I get to do my like equivalent of the 50 year storm kind of thing this would be that our last bank robbery we would not rob banks after this but we need to get away for these last two and it's why the last one is so reckless and it is this like just adrenaline rush for him that he becomes manic and terrifying (laughs) by the end of the movie he can't accept that it's over when it is and like you know he's forcing Roach to do the skydive when he's like clearly bleeding out and he's like trying to recover and then like you know you just see Roach's fucking corpse on the ground (laughs) and stuff and they say right up front no they've never been close to catching them and now that Utah is there and like you know they know it's him it's not like they're still trying to investigate anything one way or the other they're gonna get busted and it's like yeah i think yeah as you say like it's introduced this element of actual danger when it's argued 
probably been like too easy for them and too safe for them and but he talks about how like you know we show force to avoid conflict and 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 they don't actually want to kill anyone or hurt anyone and he says you know it's not it's not about the money i don't know if his crew necessarily agree but he's like you know we're just doing it to stick it to the man and all that i guess we should talk about and so you know there are these sort of five maybe six big action scenes and and three of them are bank robberies but so good that (laughs) <laughs> the guy wearing the Nixon mask does a Nixon impression. Completely unnecessary. We'd seen similar scenes like this, people robbing banks in masks, and like even the movie Bestseller, they're all wearing, I think they're all wearing a Nixon mask, or they're all wearing the same mask or whatever, but their gang have so much youthful exuberance, even in the robbery scenes, you know, like just leaping up on the on the tables and, and being this sort of cult of personality and everything, and I think all the robberies are done really well, up to the, like, the botched one, where like you've got the off duty cop who everybody gets popped and and Bodhi has to actually use violence for the first time and I think Johnny getting shot in the chest wearing a bulletproof vest like you know we see so many movies where they're basically it's on it's a it's a force field it's invulnerability armor and I don't think they can take multiple shots like that but at least him being like so out of breath and and taken to the floor it's slightly more realistic than you normally see from that kind of thing yeah no absolutely I I mean I have to wonder because obviously the masks are so good (laughs) in that they're all a little bit terrifying and like i know you said earlier that patrick swayze probably wasn't in like all the scenes with the mask and stuff like that but like I think there are some, some of them, yeah there are some shots where like you see his eyes through the mask they're really creepy in that way like obviously that's not his face but like it, it's a step above just plastic mask over the face when it's the sort of quieter moments when you see the eyes moving and it's just it takes on this really weird edge it's absolutely terrifying and i had to wonder because obviously we all know that the dark knight is massively influenced by heat but there was an energy to like the masks that they're using where i was like are they is point break an influence point break as far as i'm concerned is an influence on everything but that's the thing is because obviously like that that opening sequence of the dark knight is like they're all wearing the creepy joker masks and all the rest of it and it's like i know the tone of this is so much more michael mann than it is catherine bigelow but like is is there some of that energy in that opening scene to dark knight in this and obviously like it just says not that uh not that nolan isn't like an original director but it is obviously he does hat tip his his like forebearers like quite a lot lot. i mean i think you know he is obviously like the big robbery movie but like i do think that this the ex-president's gang that is one of the more memorable sort of bank robbery crews in the history of cinema despite its slightly unlikely source and like you know the image of nixon setting fire to the gasoline thing (laughs) just wielding a makeshift flamethrower in this fucking Ronald Reagan mask is so, like, it's so bizarre and beautiful. <laughs> the two, like, really big ones are The Raid and The Chase. And I think throughout this movie, Bigelow is so good at, I mean, if you want to call them Chekhov's guns or, or whatever, but there's so much stuff that is set up and then pays off. And something as small as, like, the lawnmower starts up and scares Johnny, which in turn then, like, they can't hear each other over the radio, and then it becomes the thing that, like, they keep almost murdering each other with this lawnmower. And, like, you know, Bodhi mentioning the 50-year storm halfway through, and then it's back, and there's several of these throughout the movie. I can't even remember all of them. I, I, I thought she's very good at, like, you put this here, and then you pay it off there, kind of thing. His knee for instance like his knee injury is is why in the in the incredible chase where he's running for a comically long time he can't get his man because of his knee and i mean i think that's the most important thing it's like and it's what makes me think that this script got so heavily rewritten is the fact that this whilst the story is dumb and some of the lines of the dialogue are like 
only good because they're delivered well. Like, if they were <laughs> delivered by different actors, they wouldn't be good. The actual mechanisms of the plot of this movie are so tightly wound, and yeah. I have to imagine that is Cameron and Bigelow just, like, noodling over, like, what they're going to do with this, and making it so much more of a visual piece. Because, like, I can imagine, if you shot this script as written, it's mm. probably dreadful. If you shot it as written and you cast traditional action movies, if you got, like, Schwarzenegger and Stallone to play the roles at this point or something like that, or like, even if you got, like, Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp, who are also, like, circling around this kind of movie at that time, it probably is one of the worst action movies. <laughs> it's such a fine line between those two things. There is a, a an endearing clumsiness to the action as well. Like, you do have people, like, falling over tables and through doors and getting dogs thrown at them. And, Does and... anyone win a fight in this movie? I don't, I don't think so. I don't just mean, like, Keanu does not win a fight in this movie. The only fight he, like, quote-unquote wins is the one that Patrick Swayze comes up to help him with. There you go. Patrick Swayze won that fight. He does. Um... He did win that fight. But, but apart from that, like, does anyone actually, like... Cause not FBI, really. It's all really clumsy. fuck up that raid so bad. <laughs> That's the button on that scene that makes that so much more worthwhile, is that you get this great, tense action sequence with, like, making the lawnmower the most tense thing in the world and the knife being, like, flipped across the room because he manages to get it into the blades and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's so good and so tense, and then immediately afterwards it's just like, cool, you guys wasted everyone's time. Tom fucking Sizemore dressing them down in an uncredited role. We've lost the drugs. These aren't the guys that you wanted. You've just hurt yourself. One of your FBI agents has been stabbed in the back by a naked woman. <laughs> and I love that too. Like, in a clumsier movie, in a worse made movie, they know from the start it's Bodhi's crew and he's embedding with them because he thinks they're the bank robbers. That's not the case here. He thinks it's a surfer and he just happens to befriend Bodhi and Tyler and it's to get him into the scene. And he's, it's, he's it's, convinced it's the white supremacist gang because it's like, yeah, obviously they're doing all the crimes. And then it turns out to be Bodhi. And I think that element works as well. Well, I think that's the thing. So he's looking for four guys. And obviously, like, he just has this, like, chance meeting. With the Red Hot Chili Peppers. With the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Anthony Kiedis with a terrible haircut. Yeah, he has this chance meeting, which is just, he is, like, surfing. And then, like, this other surfer just bumps into him. Completely on that other surfer, I have to imagine. <laughs> he, like, goes into the back of it. <laughs> Johnny's just like, oh, look, the first group of four surfers that I have encountered, immediately they must be... <laughs> the hardened criminals. Like, uh, like, no, these guys are obviously way too irrational to be oh, behind the bank robberies. Like, I know, yeah. they're obviously involved in crime, yeah. but they are way too impulsive for, like, what you've been told the, the bank robbery is. But I do like that the, the stinger to that is obviously he comes back from that failed raid and then he just watches Bodie, like, surfing over the break with, like, the four guys all the row. He's like, oh, fuck, it's them up, isn't it? And I like that all along, it is actually a slightly wild theory that they're surfers in the first place. It's like, oh, look, look at their body movement. And also, this earth sample had some wax in it. And it's like, all right, I mean, you're right, but you shouldn't be. The raid sequence is great. And I think it, it is made even better by the fact that, like, it's utterly pointless. It's just a great <laughs> action sequence in the middle of this movie. But, yeah, the chase is The like, chase is all time. So, so good. And I adore that it starts in the background while he's getting the sandwiches. Like, in this almost one shot of him ordering at the counter and then they all pull up and cut. You know, it's almost like a... becomes a comedy film for a minute. They, they don't even go into the interior of the bank in that situation, do they? They literally stay with Johnny and and Pappas. Yeah, you see them go in and then when he brings the uh, the sandwiches back, you see that he's like, oh, did you get a look at that car? And then they come out and get in it. And he's like, shit! 
it's got so many stages and obviously like you get the fantastic like car chase to start it with and then obviously they fuck up the cars and then they have to go like they have to break off and then he's like setting fire to the car <laughs> and then the chase just gets like increasingly more and more ludicrous like yeah. <laughs> them just walking up to people's like backsliding doors opening them up running through their house and then going into someone else's Johnny kicks a dog at one point in the he, middle of he this does, chase. does do that they throw a real dog and he kicks a fake dog <laughs> Okay. Yes. I, I did make sure to look that up. Smashing through that lady's back door and, and then like, you know, they're running through people's gardens and, you know, it starts off, it's just, you know, really tight alleyways and, and there is just this incredible sense of geography and kinetic energy and we talk about this when we talk about all the, the like superhero movies and everything but like, this feels like a place because it's a place and like there's a real cameraman running through real streets and stuff. Yeah, like I, I miss when they would do this rather than it's just, yeah, the, the visual artists have made up what the scene needs to look like so we just need you guys to stand in this exact point so we can CGI <laughs> over you later. We've got the huge green room room that you can do it in exactly. and it's like it's why the better at this point Marvel stunt scenes are like are filmed on location and stuff like that but like so few of them though. <laughs> it's so few of them at this point like they so rarely use an actual real location because it's like well we're filming on a lot in Atlanta at this point so yeah. as fun as the Civil War massive superhero fight scene is it's like fairly nondescript airport. I do like it but every time I see it since the first time I am very painfully aware that like this is all just computer bullshit isn't it <laughs> to see just how ludicrously long Johnny Utah is running full tilt for and that it is paid off with you know they do that little drop down the um, the embankment or whatever and, and you know he fucks up his knee and just the iconic they lock eyes he knows it's Bodhi I think and just, yeah, firing the gun wildly into the air, and just, yeah, film history is made. I did have to do a Nick, Nick Frost cry <laughs> in the same way. It would be a good point to end it on, but we probably should just very quickly also talk about the skydiving. I mean, we, we kind of talked about the, it a the little. skydiving is great. I think yeah. the second skydive, like, the second skydive is less interesting. I know yeah. that they're obviously, like, still doing it somewhat, but it is held back by the fact that, like, it doesn't have the sheer joy of yeah. that first skydiving sequence, and obviously, like, yeah. the, sh the sh some of the sheer joy is the contrast between the way that they shoot Keanu and the way they shoot Swayze <laughs> doing it. And it's just it's so funny to look at it and go, like, I can see... <laughs> I can see that Keanu did not do this. Yeah, fair play to him, to be honest. <laughs> the tension, obviously, of this second one is the fundamentally the like them gripping onto each other and like just daring each other. You can take the shot if you want to pull the shoot. You're going to have to kill me, and we're running out of air, kind of and, thing. And it is a fun contrast, like the earlier one, where it's like they're holding onto each other and they're just daring the other one to pull their shoot first. Post chase, you have that tension of they know who each other are, and the charade must be maintained and like when he comes to the house Johnny's badge and gun are just out in the open and he's subtly hiding them and you know they're dicking around and passing parachutes around and you know what... I, 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 that, the, the chaos of that where like he obviously doesn't want to have the shoot that they've made for him after their joke of like oh Bodhi packed that one and Bodhi's shoots only go like 50% of the time <laughs> and then like they just pass it around like you don't want this shoot you want this shoot you want this. And it's just like yeah. just to really throw it in his face like, going, like he obviously is scared that like they're gonna kill me <laughs> they're gonna kill me by not having my shoot full and then they just pass it around until he gets to the point where it's like, I don't even know whether or not, like, aren't they, like, triple-crossing him at this point? Did they just sincerely have a nice time skydiving? I'm pretty sure landing in the water would still fuck up your knee, but that's fine. And certainly the final landing they have at the end, his knee would just be dust at that point. <laughs> but... 
it's kind of the forgotten element of it in some ways because everyone remembers the surfing they remember the big chase they remember the ex-presidents they remember all of that and it's like you know that like basically the entire back half of the movie or the final third it all hinges around these skydiving scenes and they are fun but they just it's almost unfair having to compete with what came before it uh, what if we added in snowboarding mm-hmm <laughs> And free soloing and wingsuits and all that sort of shit, yeah. A fundamental misread of what this movie is about, to think like, ah yes, people like Point Break for the extreme sports. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, kind of, but it's that they're a bit shit at them. (laughs) Or, you know, Bodhi is supposed to be a legit great surfer or whatever, but like... Although he, you know, he obviously dies in 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 the 50 year storm and everything. It's like, you can see a version where he like perfectly catches the wave... And then and then gets swallowed or whatever. But yeah, but I mean, yeah. it is it is somewhat what Fast and Furious gets right is that Fast and Furious like makes a point of like Paul Walker likes to race. He's not very good at it. Yeah, he is kind of like he's not shit, but he's also not like as good as he thinks he is. Yeah. Which obviously it's not as interesting as Keanu literally has to learn how to surf, and he's never great at it. <laughs> which is like everyone is better than him. Yeah, but like he, but they all like him. Yeah, that's the point. He's endeared himself to them. But he's I in... did I did watch the trailer for the Point Break remake. Make, and like they make a point where it's like I'm the only FBI agent that does extreme sports and he's just like me. And it's like oh, oh for fuck's sake. Yeah, you've missed the whole point of this. It's 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 the connection, it's the it's the he kind of refines himself and just great, you know, like they only live to get radical, they don't have any real understanding of the sea, so they'll never get the spiritual side of it. Patrick Swayze made that line work. I have no more notes on the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, Roger Ebert's review of the movie is like, he's probably one of the only people at the time. Like, you look at the critical reception, like, Metacritic score from that era is like 58 of 100. Fuck them, you're wrong. 6.13 on, like, the, the average rating for Rotten Tomatoes with a 70% actual score from them. Like, I think that, I think the movie will be so much better received nowadays, but Roger Ebert's review, three and a half stars. He's like, Bigelow is an interesting director of this material. She's interested in the ways the characters live dangerously for philosophical reasons. They are not men of action, but men of thought who choose action a way of expressing their beliefs. I think it does sum up why the movie is so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> like, these are not traditional action stars, and... They're making think, a go of it. <laughs> yeah, I think the big thing about this movie is it kind of is a passing of the baton between Swayze and Keanu, where Swayze's career is dead after this. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Swayze has that like run, as I said earlier on, like Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse, Ghost, Point Break, and it's like this man is like box office like gold. He will do whatever you want him to do. And then after that, I don't think he's got a single hit. It's not that long of a run either. Like all of that comes quite early and quite close together. It's an eighty-seven to ninety-one. And then it's just kind of he's an icon, but he just doesn't do anything that big ever again so what, what's the movie that like people like, like Donnie Darko is that his best performance post Point Break sure why not and like even then he's playing a fucking paedophile yeah and then obviously like just a career cut far too short because yeah. he, he dies in 2009 of cancer and it's like mm. it's a it's a huge tragic loss and again like this is the third episode in a row that we're covering like someone in a significant creative position in the movie mm. passes away by the time that we're covering this which is just not something we've had up to this point and it's just it, it yeah. is sad. It is. Just to perk the mood back up rather than ending on that bummer. I am fascinated by the concept of Point Break Live. What do you know of Point Break Live, if anything? No. 
nothing. Okay, it is live theatre in which every night members of the audience volunteer to play Johnny Utah. They do a very quick audition. Whoever gets the loudest round of applause gets given cue cards and they play Johnny Utah in a stage version of Point Break. Laurie Petty played him once. Which just sounds incredible. I think many have speculated they're plants. Like, they just get a different local actor each night to come and do it. Because they're like, reports are whoever does it is generally actually okay. Um, but just, you know, what a preposterous thing to exist. <laughs> come play the lead of our dumb adaptation of a dumb movie. One of my ambitions in life, to play Johnny Utah. But I think we have said everything else there is to say about Point Break, so let us look ahead to next week, where it will be Robert Zemeckis' Death Becomes Her. So fuck you, Forrest Gump. We'll explain why next week. But until then, Benjamin, there is a burning question, and it's not about will we make it to the 50-year storm, it's will there be movies? There will be movies, and I want them so bad it's like acid in my mouth. (laughs) Bye, it's pretty cool. So I didn't know.